0: Hey, it's Jeff, and I'm happy to announce that Skylar and I will be collaborating on a series of retreats in 2024 at Commune Topanga. The first one is happening April 5th through 7th. So these weekends are really designed to foster greater balance in your life. The well-being, as I've discovered in all of its expressions, springs forth from balance. We seek to balance our relationships, balance our budgets, and of course, balance our blood sugar levels. So if health emerges from balance, well, illness stems from imbalances. And we see evidence of imbalances all around us from imbalanced immune systems and hormones to emotional disequilibrium. So if you break down the root cause of virtually all of our modern imbalances, you will find that they come from our convenience culture, sedentary, indoor, temperature-controlled lives filled with a surfeit of shelf-stable refined calories and a dearth of in-real-life connections. Well, these retreats upend convenience culture. They're all about realigning our biology to foster balance homeostasis. So this will include movement like yoga and hiking sessions, focusing the mind through meditation and breath work, optional ice plunges and saunas, and enjoying delicious farm-sourced meals around big communal tables, I'll also be reading some of my favorite musings as we snuggle around the fire at night. When's the last time you've been read a story? So I hope you can join us at our balance weekend retreat. The first one is happening April 5th through 7th at Commune Topanga, with support from our dear friends at Vivo Barefoot. So just go to onecommune.com/retreat for more info. And I'll see you in the Santa Monica Mountains. Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasno. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend
1: our senses through meditation.
0: We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive.
1: Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love.
0: We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than
1: us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions.
0: We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. So today on the show, my better half Skylar puts me in the hot seat. So After three years of interviewing guests from Deepak Chopra to Byron Katie, from Russell Brand to Matthew McConaughey, from Wim Hof to Marianne Williamson, I share a bit of the wisdom that I've gleaned. I am synthesizing many ideas into some kind of coherent understanding of how to live a good life. And as you will hear, I am still a work in progress, but I hope you enjoy
1: All right, darling, I thought it would be interesting, perhaps, to put you in the hot seat for once. You have so many amazing people on the other side of the microphone from you, and I I think you're a very good interviewer, so I hope I do you justice. But one of the things that I've noticed sitting across the kitchen table from you and in our, our long rambling walks that we take is that you have synthesized much of the wisdom and information from all of these very diverse thinkers and experts. And you've really crafted your own epistemology or you're in the, in the process of putting together a very t- distinct, worldview. And I don't think you quite get a chance to put those pieces of your particular puzzle together very often when you're just in the job of host. So I thought maybe I could facilitate you doing that sort of a little some ideating around timestamp where you are now in this journey that you're on. And uh, I, I've been thinking about you and this shift you've gone through in the last couple of years, and parallel to a shift that I've been going through, and um, in some ways they're they're it's together, but largely we're I'd say we're on two train tracks, our wheels turning nicely in sync, but it's not the same, and and my turn of the wheel is largely. Been circumstantial, you know, COVID shifts related, and then also perimenopause and the shifts of the dynamics of our family and our kids getting older. And um, your shift has been so cerebral, and you've really gone in this very um, interesting intellectual deep dive. And it's been it's been really exciting to watch sometimes boring for me because you are really interested in some things that I'm not that interested in, <laughs> but overall quite edifying. So in thinking about sitting down, I was thinking about the the, the terminology around the cycles of man. And I knew that there was, were four, there's in the talk of there being four cycles of man. And then I also had it in, in my mind that there were seven, but I didn't know where that came from. And um, so I looked it up, and I came across the William Shakespeare poem from which the Seven Stages of Man come from. And I thought I might read it if you'll humor me. Mm. Do you mind? Please. Okay. So it is the Seven Ages of Man by Mr. William Shakespeare. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They all have their exits and entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first, the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school, and then the lover sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the par, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly, with good cap on lined with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well-saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank and his big manly voice. Turning again towards childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all. That ends this strange eventful history, is second childness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything.
0: Mm. (laughs) Brilliant.
1: Yes, quite something. So here you are, I would say, quite clearly, except for not in fair round belly, because you're actually quite fit these days, (laughs) but um, certainly full of wise saws and modern instances playing your part.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's a beautiful poem, and it's uh revealing of the circle of life, for sure. Um, I guess staying with the Shakespeare theme, our little lives are rounded with a sleep, um, from The Tempest, I think, pushing the edges of my Shakespeare, um, that the nature of life seems to be revealing itself as circular or round. And, um, you know, this kind of wisdom is not something that you just, you know, wake up with one day. Although I assume that one might argue that in the womb, in utero, it is clearer to feel the sensation of what might be known as ocean mind um, in Buddhism. The sensation, well, that's really just the best word we have for it, that we are simply part of something bigger, And we are just a wave in a greater body. Um, but that for those of us who are so lucky and fortunate like me, who have an opportunity to U-turn their lives, um, to spend three or four stages um, individuating oneself, and then to have the opportunity to glean wisdom and through the philosophies and, and sage advice of others to live a more examined life and uh, and certain things are revealed in that process, and I'm kind of in the midst, I'm in the throes of that right now, where, as you said, you know, I've had this extraordinary opportunity to glean the wisdom of so many people, Byron Katie, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Charles Eisenstein, Zach Bush, on and on and on, people that I've been able to sit at tables with, and, you know, for honestly, lack of a better word, you know, sponge in their knowledge, um, to the point of occasional plagiarism. But the synthesis of those things is, I think, kind of the what is my unique thumbprint. And then um, increasingly, you know, one sees oneself as part of a greater system or cycle, um, like the one that Shakespeare so articulately outlined in that poem and uh and yeah i'm sort of uh i guess rounding you know third base um if you will and uh and things are becoming i suppose a bit clearer like the nature of reality the nature of the mind what consciousness is of course these are things that exist in their platonic forms and are in some ways, ineffable
1: and unknowable,
0: but but you can come closer to them, and I think that's where I am.
1: And do you think that that this um, rounding of uh, rounding of the base is a confluence of y- you having the opportunity to meet all of these different, very diverse thinkers and your stage in life? I mean, does just simply being old enough to, to be able to put together a, a wide palette of ideas and ways of thinking?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think wisdom is specifically or distinctly confined to those who are old. I mean, there's plenty of people who are reached um, In fact, quite,
1: quite the contrary sometimes. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes you <laughs> yeah.
0: become less... Ossified. Cu- yeah, you become yeah. more ossified and less curious. Um, I've just become incredibly comfortable with the discomfort of confusion. Um, I have no problem thrusting myself into fields of study from microbiology to um, the Krebs cycle to philosophical and spiritual traditions of the East, or et cetera, a myriad um, topics that I find fascinating and, and being extremely lost and confused for hours upon hours at a time. But it is the, I think if anything, what I've gained is a certain kind of perseverance that I know that my brain is mapping that confusion. And as I've discovered, um, the brain likes confusion to the degree that then once something lands, once something is truly understood, your brain then marks it with a burst of the neurotransmitter dopamine to be more specific.
1: You know, tell me, I know that you've gone down the wormhole of 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 hacking your learning a little bit. So explain it to me and I'll try and follow follow the biochemistry.
0: Yeah. Well, a lot of this is gleaned from the neuroscientist Andrew Huberman, who's a professor at Stanford and has a podcast called the Huberman lab, which I listen to from time to time. Um, And he addresses topics around neuroscience, particularly neuroplasticity, uh, the brain's ability to change in response to the environment and experience. And this is obviously a very hopeful and optimistic concept because um, you know, we are not fixed human beings that we can continue to expand and grow and learn and evolve um, even in our, our, our later years. And there's other emerging fields of study like epigenetics and, um, and to some degree the microbiome that are also similarly, similarly hopeful in that... Um, They really tell us that we are not fixed, that our fate is not determined by some nucleotide sequence in our DNA, Um, that we are um, ever-changing and impermanent beings. And of course, the Buddha told us this in 450 BC, but he didn't have the scientific anchoring per se to understand how it applied to neuroscience, though maybe he did.
1: Neuroscience or just our cellular makeup.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, while it is absolutely true that when you're 25 years old or less, it is simply easier to, to learn. And we witness that all the time, you know, with children that seemingly pick up languages and instruments, you know, through osmosis. Um, and it does become harder uh, to learn in in your later years, but certainly totally possible to rewire the brain to make new connections between neurons and to unwind old uh, self-destructive connections and synapses, et cetera. And that there are modalities uh, that we can employ to hack that process. Essentially, we um, tap into our nervous system, particularly the autonomic nervous system, and which is split into two primary Distinct parts, the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system, that are both associated with uh, particular neurotransmitters or neuromodulators, to be more specific. And that, you know, generally these are things that are happening below the crust of consciousness, so breathing and digestion, et cetera, um, that that we don't have to focus on. And we can focus on the world of the 10,000 things over here. But When we do actually focus in on techniques and modalities, we can influence how that autonomic nervous system functions, such that certain neurotransmitters can be secreted at certain times to optimize the retention of information and learn new skills. Uh, And I can go into some great detail on- Just tell me how to do it. Okay. Um, <laughs> but
1: not in too much detail.
0: I want, yeah. I'll give, give me the top line. Yeah. So basically there are five components to learning um, or to optimize to learning. So there is alertness, focus, uh, mis- mistakes, perseverance, and rest. And, um, and all of those processes have their concomitant neurotransmitters associated with them. So if you can find ways and practices to trigger the right neurotransmitters at the right time, you can really optimize that process. So very quickly, if you wanna learn how to play piano or learn a new language or strum a guitar, or whatever particular field of study you're interested in, you generally wanna concentrate those learning bouts in about 90 minute ultradian cycles. So your circadian cycles, 24 hours, these ultradian cycles are ninety minutes, and those are that's good parameters uh, for learning sessions. So if you want to learn something, you set that amount of time aside, and really what you want to do at the beginning of that process is to um, is to accelerate or or create produce a certain amount of alertness in your body. So this is why oftentimes better learning happens in the first part of the day when the body is. Already normally secreting cortisol, um, but really what you want to do is is um, secrete a certain amount of cortisol or even better epinephrine or adrenaline so epinephrine and adrenaline are basically the same thing Adrenaline's cr- created in the adrenal glands epinephrine's created in your brain, but essentially it's the same neurotransmitter so before you want to learn something, you want to stimulate epinephrine in your body so there's a whole bunch of different ways to do that. Um, tumo, breath, Wim Hof, etc. Um, there's cold therapy, cold water therapy.
1: Coffee? Coffee? Um, mm. it,
0: some people like coffee and uh, it, it can be helpful for a certain period of time, but everybody's different in that regard. So really what coffee is doing is that caffeine is um, blocking the adenosine receptors on cells. So every cell in your body has these adenosine receptors adenosine is a particular compound that builds up in your body across the course of the day to make yourself imperceptibly more and more tired so really what you're doing when you drink coffee is the caffeine is blocking that adenosine receptor and then eventually that caffeine wears off and the adenosine floods into down. the cell and that's why you get crash. a crash mm-hmm. so, Here's the interesting part about it, because I could go into great depth and I have on this show about optimizing learning. Really what's super interesting about it is that what you're doing is you're finding this perfect balance between your parasympathetic nervous system, which is famously associated with rest and digest, which has a certain kind of neurotransmitter associated with it called acetylcholine, which really optimizes focus. And then your sympathetic nervous system, which is like cortisol and epinephrine and norepinephrine, which really promotes alertness. So you don't want to be like too alert and too energized because when you sit down to learn something, you're so jittery that you're checking every device and every notification and your hands are shaky. So really what you're doing is you're hacking your body to find that perfect balance. You're never really 100% in your sympathetic nervous system or 100% in your parasympathetic right. parasympathetic nervous system. Sometimes we can think of things with that kind of duality, but that's, that's really not how it works. So what you're trying to do is optimize and upregulate the alertness of your, uh, created by epinephrine from your sympathetic system and balance that with acetylcholine um, from that's more associated with your parasympathetic system. Hey, it's Jeff. And as an athlete, I've been told my entire life to make sure that I get enough electrolytes, but it's only recently that I have truly understood what electrolytes are and the many essential physiological functions that they fulfill. Okay, so you ready for Electrolytes 101? Here we go. When essential minerals like sodium, potassium, chloride, and magnesium dissolve in a fluid, they form electrolytes, positive or negative ions needed to maintain vital bodily functions. For example, sodium ions are used by the brain to send electrical signals. Hello, electrolytes through your neurons in order to communicate with other neurons and the cells throughout your body. So electrolytes are key for brain health. Sodium also retains water and maintains proper hydration levels and fluid balance in your cells through a process called osmosis. Now calcium and potassium are needed for muscle contraction. They facilitate muscle fibers to slide together and move over each other as the muscle shortens and contracts. A magnesium is also required in this process so that the muscle fibers can relax after contraction. A magnesium is a total other beast. It plays a role in protein synthesis, sleep and blood sugar balance, and hundreds of other functions it's for all these reasons and more that i add element to my water element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with a thousand milligrams of sodium 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium and guess what no sugar element is sweetened with stevia a plant-based sugar substitute that won't spike glucose levels A 20-ounce serving of many popular sports drinks that I'm sure you know can contain 36 grams of sugar. It's absurd that those products are marketed as healthy when they contain almost as much sugar as a soda. Many listeners know that I still play competitive tennis. Before I started using Element, I was prone to fatigue and cramping during long matches due to the loss of sodium. No longer. I'm right there, moving like a panther at the end of a grueling three-set match. So right now, Element is offering Commune listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets, free, with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com commune. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T, drinkelement.com slash commune. Element offers no questions around refunds, so try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a friend, and they will give you your money back, no questions asked. You've got nothing to lose. So go to drinkelement.com slash commune. So there's a bunch of different hacks to be able to do that. I mentioned a couple of them. Um, One that's kind of uh, super interesting that's kind of a strange holy grail is um, challenging, is engaging in some crazy balancing act because the vestibular system that's in your ear, um, it uh, it basically measures where you are in three-dimensional space. So three-dimensional space could be up, down, left, right, forward, backwards, and through these fluids that exist in, in your inner ear, it, it can, uh, your, your vestibular system essentially reconciles where you are um, to keep yourself upright and balanced. Um, but if you are really challenging that system, it, uh, there are neurons in, uh, in that area of your, of your brain that essentially secrete this cocktail of, of neurotransmitters. Uh, epinephrine acetylcholine and dopamine and that is the perfect elixir for learning and if you think Mm -hmm. about it um, it, it's quite easy to understand like if you were walking a slack line over a mountain pass you are both incredibly alert but very very focused and that is more or less the situation that you want to create when you're learning a very difficult tune on a piano or something like that
1: not particularly relaxed so it's really like alert and focus. I mean, I would be like freaking the fuck out.
0: But well, you may be, and maybe that's not the perfect example, but um, but it it does represent a certain kind of alertness and focus. And then, strangely enough, if we kind of just continue to walk through this process, um, the brain maps error. So, if you are learning guitar or learning a language or learning a particularly difficult run on the piano, um, your brain will recognize a pattern of mistakes that you're going to make through that period. So, if you're, you you know, saying French quotations out loud, you know, you'll be like, you'll stumble over an accent or something like that. And then if you persevere, through that process and then eventually nail it, you know that you've nailed it and your brain will release, uh, dopamine and that consolidates that learning. So really epinephrine sort of marks the neuron or stimulates the neuron. Acetylcholine kind of marks it for consolidation. And then dopamine gives it kind of that final, um,
1: Puts it in the kiln.
0: Puts it, yeah, th- that essentially allows that synapse, that c- communication from one neuron to another neuron to gel.
1: But you have to make the mistakes in order for that to it, happen?
0: It certainly seemingly really helps that process. Hmm. Um, and so, this is why perseverance and resilience is so important. And there's so many different techniques and, I mean, the stove basically... The entire philosophy of Stoicism rests a lot about unresilience. There's a lot we can mine and excavate around the topic of resilience. But the last stage for the consolidation of learning or memory um, happens then later you know, when you sleep or in deep rest. Um, you can engage in certain kinds of modalities like yoga nidra or even to some degree meditation. And that sort of closes the loop on um, on neuroplasticity and and the creation of new neural networks. So- It's another circle. It's another circle. They're all circles. Um, They're actually all bushes really, but a bush is more of a three-dimensional representation of a circle. I mean, I started to think about it as a bush because if you look at systems that seem circular, um physically, like your gut microbiome or a mycelium network that's underneath the ground, or a the cluster gray. of neurons in your mm-hmm. brain, um, or even a society. Um, and I know we both listened to the Jaron Lanier interview um with Barry Weiss, and we we've talked about that on on one of our many walks. Um <clears throat> And um, the the healthiest systems appear to be these bushy like circles. And in that particular case, like Jaron Lanier speaks very eloquently around what a real healthy society looks like. So we think about it in this kind of two dimensional way as a bell curve, where there's a lot of wealth distributed across the middle class. But really what it actually looks like if you were to break through the boring, two-dimensional textbook space it is a bush, where you have a tremendous amount of um, of wealth and assets clustered together, but in a way that is very mutually interdependent. And, you know, if you think about like a a bustling local town with, you know, your local jazz club and an independent radio station and... Uh, a farmer's market and a general store and its own paper and et cetera. That's what a really healthy environment looks like.
1: Interdependent. Interdependent
0: versus a, a world that is very flat and then spiked at the edges. So, you know, when you have three people in the country that own more combined wealth than the bottom 50% combined, I should say, um, that does not represent a healthy system, and you can map that across so many different areas of life when you have you know ten billion people and a hundred billion chickens, pigs, and cows, but you have absolute lack of diversity and extinction of species happening on the other side. that is not a healthy system, and you can go through virtually you know every when you look at monoculture. Uh, in agriculture, you can say the same thing when you just have corn and soy and wheat and you're planting just those three crops and then you see really nothing else until you get to the very, very bottom, the other side of the flatness. Um, And you can go through everything that we try to separate. You know, when we actually take livestock and we separate it away from the crops that we grow, when we push it to the other side, Of course, what that ends up doing is creating...
1: Crops, uh, animals, and guts all suffer.
0: Yeah. And, you know, when a healthy soil, again, looks like this bush, you know, it looks like this mycelium network that is kind of this three-dimensional structure that's sitting under the ground and, you know, it's aerated by earthworms and other microorganisms and microbes and root systems that are all pushing nutrients that come through, photosynthesis, catalyzed, by of course the sun and all these things. This is like, once you actually start to understand the mechanisms of how life works, uh, you begin to see all of these patterns. And uh, well,
1: you know the, I'm sure you've seen um, EKGs of, of a child's brain that looks like a bush. Mm. And then the adult brain looks like a tree, kind of sometimes a very stripped down tree because our neural pathways carve out these trenches and it it really actually changes the way that the, I guess it's an electromagnetic mapping of the brain. And um, that's the, I remember seeing that early, like 20 years ago or something when I was first learning about um, the concept of vasanas in, the, in mm-hmm. the yogic tradition and a vasana is, is like a trench it's like a it would m- mostly be sort of translated like a, the trench that water makes so water's flowing and then it finds one path and then it etches into that path and then it makes a stronger and stronger there's a tropism towards this one thing and and then that i at one point i was i thought that was so fascinating and that as part of the the yoga practice, you're attempting to break through those vasanas. You're trying to like bust yeah. out the, make your channels wider and more diverse and create a bush instead of a tree, essentially. And then I saw a couple, some mapping of the brain, and I was like, oh my God, there it is right there. You know, another instance of neuroscience and ancient wisdom coming yeah. coming together. I
0: think I could be wrong, but I thought vasana technically meant aroma or scent, which could make sense hmm. um, in Sanskrit, Ooh. but of course it's it's like many Sanskrit words it's used across a whole variety of it's purposes. It's one
1: Google touch away. It
0: is, <laughs> this is why. I, we'll
1: put money on it right now.
0: Um, yeah, I think I've learned it because Sadhguru pronounced it wasana, and I was like, what is wasana? <laughs> and then I had to look it up. Um. But yeah I, I, yeah, I mean, I continue to become enchanted, which is an interesting word because you're in a chant, um, and Alan Watts has all of these incredible etymological breakdowns of particular words, and a lot of Sanskrit too, so almost all the Sanskrit I know is because I've listened to endless Alan Watts, um, but I've become increasingly enchanted with the mechanisms of nature and how they simply emerge. And we've talked about this and part of what makes our relationship such a beautiful teeter-totter is that I get to try out a lot of these ideas as we walk through the hills. And I know that I bore you to death, but you're always patient. And then when the when idea lands,
1: I know that you're actually not Um, I'm not bored to death. Mostly I'm interested in the top level ideas, just sometimes the... uh,
0: Yeah, no, I can tell when you're wool gathering. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, recently I delved into the carbon cycle and uh, I won't go into it in utter great depth because I know this one did bore you. But... In short, this is how the photosynthetic and non-photosynthetic world um, perpetuates each other. And this is a a great, un, just astounding example of the mutual interdependence of all things. And when the Buddha sat under the fig tree and had his um, awakening, or what later became the, the Bodhi tree, I suppose. Um, this is what he saw. He saw Indra's net, which is life is a net in which each intersection of that net has a bead of water that reflects every other intersection. And this was a very particular way to look at how life emerges, that life is not something created or produced, but it exists within this unbelievably complicated Interconnected net um, and that in many ways, we just need to let go and get out of the way and be a part of that emergence. but let me just take a moment to explain kind of the carbon cycle so you, so people can get a some degree of context, so it all starts with the sun um, which One will eventually see is the source of everything. It's sort of the keystone of anything and everything that exists. Um, But there is a fusion reaction that happens in the core of the sun where in which um, two hydrogen nuclei fuse and produce helium and kind of through that fusion process light energy is emitted in every direction and eventually makes it into our atmosphere where it comes into our atmosphere as electromagnetic radiation and, um, and becomes a thermal event because actually heat is not hot or light is not hot by the sun. I mean, within the sun it is, but in space there's a vacuum, so there's nothing to make hot. So it's kind of a, go on, mind twister.
1: Okay. Keep going.
0: Okay. Sorry. I'm good. Yes, keep
1: going. I'm going to keep you on point here. Okay, so
0: we yeah. got the sun. We got the sun. And so light energy comes down and, and, and catalyzes a process within the chlorophyll, the plastids of a leaf on a plant which um, takes in water largely from its roots and carbon dioxide from the air and goes through this process of photosynthesis which, whose output is essentially glucose and oxygen. So, the glucose then gets formed into these macronutrients, sugars and carbohydrates, fats and proteins. Um, But in essence, this glucose, which is a carbon strand molecule, gets used for the structure of the plant. It obviously interacts with the genomics of the plant to make some sort of fruit or vegetable. Um, And then it pushes down um, through the roots of the plant to... Uh, feed microorganisms in the soil and conveniently the fruit seems to be pretty much at, at, at the height at which we can pick it quite often. And so I'll just say that that's the first half of the carbon cycle is that photosynthetic cells take sunlight, carbon dioxide, and water and produce oxygen and glucose. So that's the first half. We as humans and other mammals um, and animals provide the yang to that yin, where we take an apple off a tree and we bite into it and enzymes start to digest it. And it goes through our GI tract, through our esophagus into our stomach where enzymes and acids break that down and moves into our small intestine where nutrients, macronutrients, phytonutrients, et cetera, get absorbed into our bloodstream. Um, insulin made by the pancreas picks that up and, uh, and takes the glucose, let's just say in this particular case, into your cell, goes through a process of gly- glycolysis, which I won't go too deep into. Don't go too deep into it, keep and going. And goes into this thing called the Krebs cycle and then this electron chain cycle uh, and essentially produces energy atp which which energizes and provides everything that we need for our whole body to function um and its byproducts are water and carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide gets and is picked up by the blood and back into the lungs and is expressed and exhaled out into the world and so the non-photosynthetic world of which we are part of um takes oxygen and glucose and breaks down the glucose that the that the photosynthetic cells have made. And um and breaks so it takes oxygen and glucose and creates energy and water and carbon dioxide. And then the cycle then goes back and continues. But now, we never
1: send it back to the sun. So that's explain that.
0: Right. So this is why the sun is the source of all energy. So the carbon cycle exists here within Earth, and it is a just unbelievably elegant, um, complex process that would take me, well, a semester or two (laughs) to fully explain, and to be honest, understand, But but without the sun, none of that exists, and we already have proof of that because there have been five extinction events, the last one 64 million years ago, being created by an asteroid or most likely, or a volcano, which led to a nuclear winter and through which the sun could not permeate, hence all photosynthetic growth stopped. And 95, 96% of all species went extinct. So um, so the sun is the center of it all. And of course, this is why so many ancient cultures and indigenous cultures worshipped the sun as a godhead, essentially, and in a way it's the closest thing that we have put our finger on to be some sort of godhead, in, in the sense that it does provide life. for life. Right. Um, and really, of course, it is <laughs> so this is the, the amazing thing is that when, when, once someone begins to understand these processes, one begins to understand nature as the logos as the um foundational logic and intelligence of how the univ- universe functions because we did not create it like we did not say oh yeah there's a godhead um that then somehow created us except we created him in our image because he looks like a grandfather in a robe you know um like there's the, obviously the, the, the notion that, that God created man in his image. But if this is a great source of confusion, because otherwise, I mean, how does bas- he look like us? He, he yeah. looks like us. Um, yet is also invisible, but is visible, but is omniscient and omnipresent and merciful. Yet, of course, five million children are starving every year. So it's very, very confusing. Um,
1: back to the carbon cycle. Yeah.
0: Um, but once you begin to, Understand these, the functionality of and the processes of nature. Um, one a, a can really ascribe some sort of cosmic intelligence, and um, if one feels that they need that. Hey, it's Jeff. Now, I always heard vitamin supplements are a waste of money as they just pass through your system. Expensive pee, right? Well, now I understand why and the reasons it's so hard to absorb large doses of certain nutrients through the pills, powders, and gummies at the store. Now, when you take these supplements or even consume foods, your digestive system must extract vitamins and minerals and depending on the nutrient, convert them to a form your body can use. Now some nutrients depend on proteins to transport them into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Now often these supplements contain such large quantities that your body doesn't have enough resources like transporter proteins to absorb the nutrients. Since your body can't store water-soluble vitamins like C and the B family, as well as minerals like magnesium, zinc, and selenium, they wind up excreted and never reaching the cells where they are needed to support your immune system, metabolism, nervous system, and so much more now i didn't know all of this when i started taking live on labs lipospheric vitamin c i just know that if skyler was giving them to me they must be good well it turns out that live on labs understands the difficulty of high dose nutrient absorption and they became the first dietary supplement company to use liposomal encapsulation technology to enhance nutrient absorption now, liposomes are double layered spheres that Live On Labs uses to surround, protect, and transport water-soluble vitamins and minerals into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Liposomes are made of essential phospholipids, the same material that makes up your cells, so they easily pass into the cells and deliver the nutrients, staying behind to fortify the cell membrane. Now, the Live On Labs liposome encapsulated supplement line includes vitamin C, a B vitamin complex that contains pre methylated folate, a magnesium specifically formulated for the brain, and the master antioxidant glutathione. And guess what? Only the ingredients necessary for maximum absorption that means no sugar and no fillers no colors no artificial flavors if you don't want to know what that tastes like and trust me you probably don't make sure to follow the instructions on the package Uh, right now live on laps is offering commune listeners free sample two packs of all their liposome encapsulated supplements with any purchase this is a great way to try all six of their powerful supplements and get accustomed to their weird, unique, goo-like consistency. Just get yours at liveonlabs.com commune. This offer is only available through my link. You must go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. Live on Labs has a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. So you have nothing to lose. Go to liveonlabs.com slash commune.
1: It's hard not to be awed by the the magic of of nature. Is I mean the more examined it is, the more incredible it seems. Isn't that interesting though that that when you really break something down and start to understand it, it seems almost more miraculous.
0: It's astounding, it's beyond miraculous and incredibly humbling. Because The West has been really anchored in this notion or ideology that the world was something that was created, and that humanity and nature and all the animals and various systems of the world is something that has been produced by either a Godhead, you know, or, you know, in post revelatory society, enlightenment based society. You know, we, we leverage science to understand all of the different component parts of life as if it is something that can be simply created. And this, of course, informs, you know, how we think about our medical system and, our, and all of the kind of pharmacological treatments that we do. We basically treat um, life uh, as if it were a house. And when something goes wrong, we just patch the roof you know, to stop a leak. But of course, you know, that doesn't work within an organism because there are too many interrelated and interdependent parts. So yeah, you can prescribe a statin, but then all of a sudden you're not making any cholesterol. So you can't make any testosterone. So then you have no sperm count or you can't make um, cortisol, which is also made from cholesterol. So you can't be alert. So then what, you know, so then you take something else. Mm-hmm. So is it any wonder that statin drug, um, statin advertisements are followed by Cialis and Viagra Bi- on CNN? No, of course not. Because one of them, you know, addresses atherosclerosis, but then you can't fucking get it off. And then the next time, then you get your Viagra and so on and so on. And, and this is really a great, I think uh, confusion in Western society and science and medicine has obviously provided us with so much positive innovation. Um, So I'm not here, I'm not one to to poo-poo all things. In fact, I always try to see sort of the the nuanced middle, Um, but I do think there is a confusion to seeing the world as something that is created or produced versus uh, a more Eastern Taoist way of seeing the world as something that emerges as an organism and that nature functions kind of in and of itself. And um, when you uh, begin to understand some of these systems and cycles and you begin to move into a place of greater humility, you tap in to life as emergent, and when you think about the billion years, well, the earth is maybe four and a half billion years old, but maybe life you could kind of categorize as maybe a billion years. You think about how these systems like the carbon cycle, um, I mean, this, ta- this took eons to evolve. And this is where we are every day where day upon day, this is just, life is just this slow emerging evolution all the time. And it's the, every time that we try to impede upon that or impose some sort of external agent, many of which we've already alluded to, we break up, we muck up that cycle. And then nature, again, tries to react and move around that. But, you know, this really speaks to you know what Lao Tzu was talking about in you know five hundred b c when he wrote the Dao was there was this concept that was central to practicing Taoism called Wu Wei, which is best described and it's also very difficult to describe Chinese words and vocabulary often often but Wu Wei is based best described as um <laughs> Action without intent. That the world is flowing, and the the most the best way to live is to cut with the grain, is to move with the flow of life, to move with the Tao, and Confucianism, which was its you know sister um, philosophy that emerged at a similar time in the age of the Warring States, also recognized this sort of emergence of life and used the yin-yang as this emergence of the coincidence of opposites of life and death and right and wrong and left and right and up and down. And applied sort of a spiritual um, framework based upon the tian which was sort of the Chinese concept of heaven that that posited in Confucianism that um, that humans were here to make order out of this emergence of nature, out of this emergence of opposites. And it outlined all of these protocols and rituals and fealty, kind of filial fealty and relationships between the warrior class and the servant class and all this kind of stuff. Um, but Lao Tzu in, in the Tao, you know, he was old, always portrayed as old and wizened with a long white beard. And it said he was actually born with the beard, which is funny. Um, but he became very disentangled from kind of this social dull care. And well, that
1: put man very much at the center again of
0: of creating order out right. of the chaos. Right, and what he saw was that nature creates that order, and really all what we generally have to do is just get out of the way. And in the Tao, which is you know partly a guidebook for how to rule um, a country, but also obviously has. Spiritual tenets to it, but he gives a lot of um, uh, advice and axioms to leaders and teachers. Um, Like, for example, you know, he he really um, he says that the best kind of leader is the leader that is almost invisible, such that when something great happens, the people all stand up and say, "Look." we did it all by ourselves, that this great leader, um, rules as if he or she is the ocean, the lowest body of water, because all the streams and rivers and lakes and tributaries all flow into the lowest body and is in receipt of all of the energy and creation of, of humanity without really having to exert any energy. He says, you know, the the way that you make people untrustworthy is by distrusting them. And so, you know, he there there's so much brilliance in in this philosophy. And though it was composed, you know, five hundred years before the birth of Christ and
1: The internet. And the (laughs) internet and the
0: enlightenment and all the other things. It has such applicability um, because many times all we just need to do is let go. Is to stop clinging to notions of success or notions of right or wrong. Um, and this, when it, this is where it gets to be very, very confusing around ethics and social ethics and moral psychology, et cetera, because, you know, we are so anchored in the West to think of morality as a certain kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, in at least ancient Chinese philosophy, the Tao, you know, certainly it It espouses a life of virtue, but it doesn't um, require, in fact, it really tries to dissuade people from constantly thrusting judgment on others around the notions of right and wrong. And uh, of course, this is also echoed in Stoicism where um, that ideas of right and wrong should really just be applied to oneself. And uh, the constant uh, thrusting of morality onto things outside of yourself that you can't control um, creates a tremendous amount of resentment and indignation and anger. Of course, we see that in our society today, where there's just endless vitriol and finger pointing at anyone that doesn't Espouse you know your position on any particular issue
1: that come i mean that's that's just as old as as western thought i mean it you know judeo christian ideology is based on codifying right and wrong i mean wouldn't you say that's one of the most galvanizing parts of any judeo christian religion is give, is giving a moral a clear moral framework for how to live
0: absolutely i mean you know Yahweh passed it down to Moses as a series of commandments, mitzvahs, that, you know, here you go, this is what needs to be followed. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Platonism is is more interesting, because while it does make a case for universal truths, universal moral virtues, um, those aren't prescribed by some invisible yet bearded godhead, that these things are forms. And this of course is the allegory of the cave, et cetera. But that we spend the examined life is all about trying to excavate what these forms are that kind of up here, you can imagine visually, we have compassion, empathy, love, moderation, wisdom, courage. As impeccable, universal, perennial truths and forms. And they, as they make their way down into the human condition, they get refracted and reflected and through a thousand different lenses until here we're sitting here trying to figure out what they are. And, you know, let's take love. Well, love initially sort of appears as lust, you know, and then it appears, well, we raise one level up. And then it becomes something around personality and the inner, the inner beauty. And then it becomes something conditional or transactional. All these kinds of different shades of what love might be. You know, and then you sort of move up, you know, that ladder. And then you're like, okay, well, love, you know, that could be a sensation that arises within the field of consciousness moment to moment and 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 dissipates the moment that I think about it or you know I watch it or witness it. And then of course you move up from there and uh and love ceases to be an emotion. It ceases to be um a sensation that that appears and disappears in this transitory fashion but becomes a state of being um, that is simply expansive and effusive and giving. And so we spend, those of us who have the time and the interest to spend their lives uh, examining what is true in the Platonistic way, try to climb that beanstalk to, to to grok the forms of these things. This is also in Jewish mysticism in the Kabbalah is similar. There's these emanations of what is true and real. And then they kind of make their way down to this to the hedonistic heretics of earth and and we spend our, our time trying to Trying to crystallize or distill what these things are in their true form, and we can never do it, but we become closer and closer to them, and that really fuels a life that is examined and where there's a tremendous amount of curiosity and, and dynamism versus sort of a fealty to a set of commandments and uh, and to a godhead that's tending some you know moral abacus. That's monitoring and registering all our various transgressions from a sexual regulatory guide. Um,
1: so let me ask you uh, just more m- more personally. Let, what does what does your um, practice look like in in uh, creating systems around which you you create? the framework for an examined life because you have very much um, I mean you work really freaking hard. let's be honest too. you also put it you do a lot of um, grinding in in just the chopping wood and you know, chopping wood and carrying water of of carrying a household and all of that. but I'm you know what what, it, what for you is the the balance to be, a, an armchair philosopher (laughs) with also being a, a householder and very much in the world.
0: Yeah, I think that there is an intellectual understanding that one can develop around a lot of these concepts. And then there is the embodying of them, the somatic capturing the sensation of them that can only be had through direct experience. So I think I'm on the front end of that journey. Now, there are moments, particularly during COVID and when I was sick, when I spent a hell of a lot of time meditating to Muji in the sauna. And, um, and you can, over time, you know, elicit a state that seems to be consilient across every tradition, philosophy, religion, spouted by every mystic sage and poet, which is some kind of sensation of samadhi, of full integrated consciousness, uh, where there is virtually no delineation between what it is like to be you And the experience of the world. Um, That there is really no separation between your appearance within consciousness and consciousness itself. And of course, you know, this, you, you get to this generally through meditation, though. It is available to anyone at any time. But if you back that up, you know, and you put it in the Look through the lens of Buddhism, for example, Samadhi is the last step, though this thing is not always linear, of the Eightfold Noble Path, and which the first step of which is wise understanding. So, the wise understanding is this process of taking in all of these inputs. It's knowledge, is step one, and wisdom is step eight, which is the emptying out of all of those things where you actually embody. The sensation of oneness and um, of utter connection of, and you know, this is really what I feel was the journey of Jesus, but of course, he only had one context into to in which to bake his epiphany or whatever he had. But my hunch is that you know he went on some walkabout the way. Siddhartha Gautama did in four fifty-eight or BC, at a very similar age actually, and you know, went out after his baptism into the desert and had some kind of epiphany of utter integrated consciousness. But of course, he only had the Hebrew tradition to place that experience into. So he came and back and said, Well, I'm the son of God. Now, of course, the history here is mangy because we only know that because of epistles and letters written by apostles and then subsequent thousands of translations to a King James Bible that only appeared in 1610 or eight 12 or something. But my sense is that very much like the Buddha, uh, Jesus had um, this experience of integrated consciousness, and then came back and said, I am the essence of God. Esos, all of these different words that he used, I am one with God. Uh, mm-hmm. I am the sun, which for me, I've started to play with this idea of son, of sound, frequency, vibration, of the etymology of that mm-hmm. word, um, that I am the frequency of God. But of course...
1: Wait, I'm unindividuated
0: from God. And that this experience is available to everybody. Mm -hmm. But of course, the institutional Catholic Church, (laughs) I think it was a no, 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 there can't be more than one one son of God. This is getting way too confusing. And this is the real difference between um, Judeo-Christian or particularly Christian um, tradition and thought and Buddhism. Because on the other end of his... Epiphanous experience, the Buddha said, "Well, this this experience is available to everyone. Everyone can be a Buddha, a Buddha awakened one." Ah, and he envisioned a world with billions of Buddhas. So, as that applies to one's own life in the world of the ten thousand things, in the real world of transactions and And, you know, what my dad calls dull care. Um, You know, how do we make sense of all of this and still kind of function? Um, You stand on one foot a lot. You stand on one foot. That helps to certainly consolidate some things. But this kind of inquiry and the practices that accompany it, you know, meditation, contemplation, um, slowly begin to punctuate your life. Uh, there's a certain signature that starts to characterize your life. and Wait, I,
1: wait, wait. You're saying they don't necessarily. You're saying they can if you practice them.
0: I think almost as a, a product of practicing them, that practice almost always... It, it almost always begets your mood or your action in life. And um, it's like uh, Paul had that quote, it's actually from Andrew Hummerman in, in the regeneration book, where it's your actions actually shape your beliefs mm-hmm. and not the other way around. So once you actually begin to engage in these actions, your your behavior and your beliefs Become kind of synonymous with them. And you can see how it punctuates your life. Where, you know, to be honest, I'm almost, I've lost a lot of ambition in the classic ego sense. So, You know, once you start to see yourself and practice these traditions that kind of dismantle the story of separation, that I'm a separate individual living in a separate external universe, separate from other people in competition with other people, always comparing myself with other people. And then sort of jumping on this hedonic treadmill because I'm trying to match up with the joneses and so I need this car or this house or this award or this particular social status and as soon as I get it the gap opens up again and then you know I never want what I have and etc that whole hedonic treadmill um that is best described by stage the second noble truth as trishna or thirst where were these hungry ghosts with enormous stomachs and endless appetites and little tiny mouths. And we're just trying to suck happiness through a straw. Um, And uh, and once you spend a time there, enough time, and you notice that none of those things that you would accumulate, no external agent um, provides you with any degree of long-lasting solace, you start to lose, you start to lose the need for it. You stop craving, you stop clinging, you know.
1: It's like you and booze.
0: You blow out. I mean, that is the, uh, the, the actual Sanskrit. Translation of Nirvana, Nir, which is a negative word, and Vana, which is breath and or blow, and so you're just blowing out, and
1: um, it's the great exhale.
0: It's the great right. exhale, right? And there's so many, you know, poetic um, metaphors to draw there, where you know, life, prana, um you know, our breath is is life. But if you hold on to your breath too long, you lose it. So you have to blow it out. And it's like we see this with parents and children, you know, parents that cling, you know, eventually like the kids become suffocated and they leave and they don't come back. So you need to let go
1: and then they'll come back.
0: Yeah, I know. So, I mean, so I, I think that... Eventually, you become, um, you become less reliant on the outside world uh, for your own happiness and you don't thrust the requirements of your ego, of the symbol that you have for yourself onto other people or the world around you. And so, when your needs are completely met. You move into a different kind of state of being. So, you on the journey to become whole, you essentially start to fulfill all of your own needs. And when your needs are fulfilled, and this is Maslowian in some way, you can self actualize. And
1: right, this and, is, of course, given that you have all of your basic needs first. Head. Yeah, right.
0: But again, through fulfilling those needs, you move into a state of being where life can be truly expansive and effusive. And eventually, you head towards this true notion of, of capital L, love, where love completely transmutes from anything taken to everything given. And you know, that's, of course, kind of what enlightenment may be and I'm certainly far from that. Um, But there is that path there and you get uh, periodic glimpses of what it would like to be living that way all of the time. I mean you look at Eckhart Tolle or the Dalai Lama or you know other people, Thich Nhat Hanh, other people that seem to have reached some level of prolonged enlightenment
1: equanimity like really lived equanimity
0: yeah and they're always giving and they're always laughing and they're just light you know and um and they found a way just to completely blow out to completely let go so this is uh yeah this is the great um this is the great journey um you know for everyone so this is And along the way, you begin to notice um, a progression. You begin to notice that the things that used to make you angry don't really make you angry anymore. That confusion becomes very comfortable and okay. You're just fine with it. That, uh, That you approach certain kinds of Socio-political fraught, um, divisive issues with a very calm kind of discernment. Where, you know, you can pick up your phone and scroll through Twitter or Facebook and witness the invective, the crazy extreme idiocy that exists across the spectrum, and really just not be very moved by it.
1: And so Wow, I am so not there in so many ways. I'm still so moved by it and still so mad when I'm on hold with customer service. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing
0: is that, that y- you know, you're not going to, there's the, the great Serenity poem by Reinhold Niebuhr, which is very, very stoic. Um, you know, you can't control everything in life. You know, really all you can Control is your response right. to that, and grant um,
1: me the, grant me the, grant me the power to change the things that I can, the serenity to accept the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference.
0: Pretty good, Grace. Something like yeah. that. That um, that really, what one needs to do is be have a lot of grace for everybody in the world, have tremendous tolerance for other people and very little for yourself. Um, that's how you huh. grow. You, just, you have to be, I think, a discipline of will and um, not to cut yourself some slack from time to time, but I, I would say that to be strict with yourself and and hold yourself to a path such that your works and actions in this life can best align with your highest principles that is a that is an authentic life
1: hmm. well i will say we will we'll leave here we'll leave this little room and we'll go upstairs and I'll have my beer or my glass of wine, and then I will sleep poorly, and I'll feel pretty shitty tomorrow, and not have a great ability to focus and um, learn about the, my mitochondria. And you, because you have developed incredible will, will not have the beer, and um, you will sleep well, which you're doing for the first time in a very long time, because you're actually we are walking the walk. Really, quite admirably, and then you're going to wake up tomorrow and you'll explain my the microbiome to me, which is <laughs> which is really we good. We didn't even that I've talk about the microbiome. Like <laughs> that's going so to have to wait for the next spot No, no, no that's got to be hot seat too. Because so we got to go upstairs because there's there's um there's a bunch of parties happening. There's three different kids having three different sets of parties upstairs. So we have to back to we have the,
0: to rake some leaves.
1: Back to the world of doll care.
0: All right. Thank you for this opportunity.
1: Yes. Thank you for letting me um, put you on the other side of the mic. I love you.
0: I love you. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you find a couple of useful needles in that haystack. I am always here at jeffk at onecommune.com, and you can follow my regular exhortations on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. If you wanna support the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Laub, Kamali Morton, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fritz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. And of course, a special thanks to my loving wife for life, Skylar. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow and I am here for you. Hey, it's Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips. After you complete your workout, it's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash DRG.